hey man, should we go kill hobos tonight? Like, yeah, sure, Ken. folks, it's Kara Mahorn, aka The Blurred Girl, and welcome back to The Blurred Girl Podcast. Now, my guest this week is journalist, TV writer, and podcaster, Mark Bernardin. Now, if you are a fan of the Fat Man on Batman podcast, then you already know Mark and his somewhat famous co-host, Kevin Smith. But Mark is more than that. He's written comics for DC, Marvel, Image, Top Cow. He's worked as a journalist for uh, Entertainment Weekly, The Hollywood Reporter, Sci-Fi Wire. In fact, that's actually where I met him. And he's written for several TV shows, including Alphas, Carnival Row, and uh, one he won an award for, Castle Rock. And don't forget, I'm going to still be going to Ace Comic Con out in Boston, and I'll have details on that and more about my chat with Mark Bernardin right after we pay some bills. If you've been following me for any length of time, then you know I stay busy and it's really hard for me to get in all the reading that I want to do. So that's why I'm a huge fan of audiobooks from Audible. And if you use my special code, audiblechild.com slash theblurredgirl, you can get a free subscription. Now I listen to them when I'm cleaning the house, traveling. They're especially great for passing the time on those long lines at the airport. Now currently I'm listening to Akata Witch for three reasons. One, I'm a fan of Nettie Ak- Coral Four's writing. Um, she writes incredible science fiction featuring African women. Two, it's been dubbed the Nigerian Harry Potter. And three, because Yatida Badaki, who was just on the show recently, is narrating it. Now, what I love about audiobooks like this is that kind of like scripted podcasts, they are like listening to old time radio programs. And I love that. But don't take my word for it. Start your own commitment-free 30-day trial at audibletrial.com slash theblurredgirl. You can choose from one audiobook and two Audible originals you can't hear anywhere else. Also, any credits that you don't use totally roll over to the next month. So start your 30-day free trial today by going to audibletrial.com slash theblurredgirl. Now, back to the show. So listen, there's really only one way to stay completely safe from the coronavirus. And that is to stay inside your house, wash your hands a lot. And uh, when you get bored, listen to every single one of the Blurred Girl podcasts. Like how I did that? You can listen on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and so many other podcatchers out there. So please consider subscribing and leaving me a rating and a comment over on iTunes. It really does help the show out. And if you're feeling extra helpful, I really love it if you could screenshot this episode, tag the Blur Girl over on IG stories in a post, and tell me what you think. That last part actually doesn't help my numbers, but it does make me feel better about myself. So you can also help my self-esteem today. Now, before we get to my interview with Mark, I just want to remind folks that I'm still, as of now, going to be at Ace Comic Con in Boston from March 20th to 22nd. I finally know who I'm interviewing. I will be talking to actor Rupert Grint, who played Ron Weasley in Harry Potter. Uh, Since then, he's done a bunch of other things, including the show Servant, that creepy new show from M. Night Shyamalan that's on Apple+. Plus. I'm also talking to model, actress, and director Bonnie Wright, who played his sister Ginny, Ginny Weasley. And remember, Ginny ended up dating Harry. And I'm also going to be chatting with actor Shamik Moore. Now, you remember him from The Get Down and Dope. And he was also the voice of Miles Morales in Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. So I'm really excited to talk to him. And I'm also going to be talking to Darth Vader. Well, sort of. Hayden Christensen. He played Anakin Skywalker in Star Wars. And I'm going to be talking to him about what he's been up to since then, because he kind of got out of acting for a minute. I think he like went to a farm or something. So I'm really, really curious about where he where he'd ended up. Now, listen, if you are coming to ACE or even if you aren't and you want to get a question to any of the actors that I just mentioned, I have a couple posts on Twitter and several on Instagram. Comment with your question and you never know, I might read it because I have to submit my questions to ACE. And uh, if it gets approved, I might ask them live and you'll get to hear your question on the live stream that happens at ACE. So stay tuned for more info on that and keep your eyes on the Blurred Girl social. Now, today's guest is Mark Bernardin. Now, if you are a geek, especially a DC Comics geek, you probably already know who this man is. 
But if you are a blur, you better put some respect on this man's name. I'm serious. Like, say it with your chest, all right? Because Mark has been in the game since before many of y'all were born. With a career that spans a couple of decades, Mark is both an award-winning journalist and Hollywood scriptwriter. Um, he's worked for Entertainment Weekly for over a decade, I believe. Yeah, I know it's longer than a decade. He moved all the way up, I know, to senior editor. And honestly, I think he really introduced the world to geek journalism. He's one of the first journalists to say, hey, San Diego Comic-Con's a thing. We should go. He's got bylines at GQ, Wired, Details, Vulture, Playboy, and Empire. He's the former film editor for the Los Angeles Times and senior editor for The Hollywood Reporter. He was also a staff writer for the sci-fi series Alphas, Hulu series Castle Rock, USA Network's Treadstone, and Amazon Prime's fantasy series Carnival Row. He's written comic books for Marvel, DC, Image, and Top Cow. I keep mentioning Top Cow because he wrote one of my favorites, Genius. I I love that comic. So in our chat, he breaks down what goes on in the writer's room, how he went from journalism to script writing and back again, and why you really can't give up. Up next, my interview with one of my favorite people, Mark Bernardin. really funny was when I first started working with sci-fi, which is, I'm not staff, I'm freelance, just like mm. most people. It's like you, me, Andre, and Angelique. Mm-hmm. This is like four of us, but we can never be in the same place at the same time because there's rules. No, I mean, somebody's got to be in the bunker, clearly, just in case, <laughs> you know, like some, <laughs> some crazy bomb goes off, like we got to save the birds. <laughs> and so somebody's always got to be the secretary of education, just like hiding and didn't get to have any fun. Then the that? only one left is Jacqueline. <laughs> That's just like NBC adjacent. <laughs> yeah, like she gets to survive. Gee, thanks. See, she's the secretary of education. But what <laughs> what dawned on me the other day when I was talking to somebody younger than me was that they didn't know that much about like you. And I, that aggravated me because I was like, you don't understand. He's like one of the reasons why a lot of us get to do what we do and play around in this geek space is because of Mark Bernard and Sir. Um, so I decided yeah. there. Well, you the, know, we got to teach the children. Well. We do. We do. <laughs> so this is part of my educational. This is part of a class. They just don't know it yet. Nice. <laughs> this gets you your tax exempt status. Yeah. It's your non non for profit work. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so. Let's let's go back. Um, when first of all, where are you where are you from, honey? Where's your people from? Um, well, th- those are two different questions. <laughs> um, I was born in the Bronx. Um, you know, lo, these many moons ago, before before the Star Wars walked this land, <laughs> um, <laughs> and just after the Star Trek was killed. <laughs> um, I uh, yeah, I was born in the early seventies in the Bronx. Um, my father is from Haiti. My mother was born in the States, but her parents were from Trinidad and Barbados. So I am I am West Indian Caribbean um, through and through um, until, of course, you trace it back further. But, you know, who needs to do that? I think we all understand how how far back you trace it. <laughs> it's so funny because people think of immigrants. They don't think of black folks from the Caribbean. So in the Bronx. Yeah, I, I lived there till I was uh, we were there till I was like 10, I think, in okay. Long Island. And then, like, grew up and then uh, moved to Queens when I got my first apartment and then New Jersey when I got married. But um, Oh, we're skipping a whole ahead. bunch of things. Yeah, a little bit. I'm going so too far. Too far, too were, you, were you going to the comic book shops by yourself at the age of 10 in the Bronx? In the Bronx? No, I, was, uh, I wasn't, like, the biggest comic book fan when I was a kid. Like, I, um, I remember my mom, once I saw Star Wars, like, Star Wars was the uh, – the big bang for me. Like that was, that was the beginning of all things. And, um, and it's like my very first memory is being in the theater, watching star Wars at like six years old, I think. Oh, wow. Um, and, uh, and after that, like my mom did that thing that, that parents do, which is he seems to like this dumb thing. Let me find him other dumb things like this dumb thing. And so she would buy me like the the comics from the news from the newsstand or from the supermarket, which were bagged and bundled like here DC for kids, and like a bunch of like rando comics that I uh, that I didn't like because I wasn't a DC kid. Um, I wouldn't find comics until I was like thirteen or fourteen um, when the Secret Wars came out. But yeah, ah. my my nerddom, my my young nerddom 
was oriented entirely around like Star Wars and Godzilla and Kiss and Kung Fu movies. Yes, the Kung Fu movies that used to come on Sunday mornings. Yes. Absolutely. Like, you know, the, the Channel 5 Kung Fu Theater, which is like yes. Saturday afternoons at 3 p.m. And then Sunday mornings at like 11 before sports would begin. Um, yes. Sports ball. Sports ball. <laughs> right, exactly. And it's really funny because we, my me and my brothers would watch the all the martial arts movies. And it was funny because we, then we'd have to move because Daddy wanted to watch sports ball. Mm-hmm. So... <laughs> Yep, like you're done. Move off. Exactly. It's time. I'm definitely curious as to, because I know you were a journalist before you started writing or getting paid to write creatively. Mm-hmm. How did you make that jump into journalism? Did you go to school for it? Um, no, I went I went to school. Um, my first major when I went to, when I went to college was a business. I was going to be, uh, I wanted to go into advertising. But I wasn't overly um, – I couldn't draw. Um, I had never really – I figured like copywriting maybe, but it's a business degree. That's how you get into advertising. And so I'll take some business classes. I was awful at it like because you had to do like numbers and math and statistics and <laughs> awful, awful, awful things. <clears throat> Nothing that I was any good at or approved any capacity towards being able to accomplish. And so then I shifted to uh, to what was generally called at St. John's University in uh, in Jamaica, New York. Um, communication arts, which was a very kind of like overwhelming umbrella like term for just liberal arts. The, yeah. It's like, what do you want to do? Well, you kind of want to make things people will watch or read or listen to at some point. Um, mass media probably would have been the, the closest thing in some other schools. Um, and mm-hmm. what St. John's was really good at was turning out um, cameramen and editors for live sports and news. Um, so they had like a TV club and a massive TV station with the big ass cameras and and like full on like at that time state of the art like one inch um, editing bays. But I was like, I want to make like movies and like uh, uh, oh uh, the one inch yeah the one inch Ampex totally. man you know what a big, like, <laughs> Green Valley switcher like yeah and it was my mm-hmm. favorite thing to do was like the 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 way to go from my like camera a to camera b was to pull this lever was the exact same lever yes. from the death star like and when you fire the big that like, you know it's really funny yes i for years i was an editor and so i remember just on a saturday afternoon once watching star wars again going oh my god they used a grass valley yep. switcher in star wars <laughs> of course they did <laughs> and that made me so happy um, so I would just sit there like all day, just like, so, dude, we have to work in here. No, leave me alone. I'm blowing up Alderaan, damn it. Um, but the, the, the great part about it was they had like a film club that nobody was in because everybody wanted to, just wanted to do TV, but they had like 60 millimeter cameras and all the film you could shoot and a deal at like Technicolor to develop it. And it was like me and two other people just wanted to use those cameras. And so I got to make a bunch of movies. Uh, none of them are good. Um, None of them, none of, I'm, I'm convinced none of them showed any sort of promise. Um, and primarily because I was the only one who gave a crap, you know, like, mm-hmm. no, especially student filmmaking. Nobody <laughs> else cares but you. Everybody else is doing this a favor. Like, hey, man, can you hold these lights? Mm, whatever. Hey, man, can you be in this? Mm, whatever. Hey, do you want to be the star? Never. <laughs> um, and so everything was like, it, it meant everything to me and nothing to anybody else. And then I, I started to focus on writing because I realized that. You know, on the page, everything is exactly as I want it to be. It's nobody else's fault if this is bad. Um, it's just mine. And so I, I kind of shifted to, to writing track because I couldn't trust anybody else. And, uh, and I entered um, a writing for television competition that was sponsored by um, Ubu Productions. Um, and, you know, nobody today knows what that was. The kids today don't know what Ubu production is. Oh, was. no, I remember Sit, Ubu, <laughs> Sit. Ubu, Sit. They produce Family Ties. It's going to be a money maker. Yes. Um, but, uh, but the guy who ran Ubu was a, was a big fan of, of student filmmakers and student writers and wanted to support it. And so we started this competition that if you won, you got to spend a summer in Los Angeles. They would pay for your freight and put you up. And you would be an intern on one of Ubu Productions' TV shows and then a mystery show to be named later. Um, so I'm like, I'm going to enter this competition. What do you need to do? You need to have a, a TV screenplay, a sample episode of a TV show. And I was like, well, the only one that I watch with any regularity is Star Trek The Next Generation. So I'm going to write a Star Trek episode, um, which I did. 
and uh, I can't. And that's how you is that how you got to be an intern? That's, that's how I ended up. Like I won this competition, and and I took full advantage of the grand prize, which was hey, awesome! I get to do like three weeks working on. It was then Brooklyn Bridge was the show that Ubu Productions was was in production on, and mm-hmm. for the second half. Um, the guy who ran Ubu, Gary David Goldberg, was like, well, you wrote a Star Trek. I happen to be friends with Rick Berman, who produces Star Trek. Let me see if he needs an intern. Um, and so I interned on Star Trek. Wow. That was like, I think you kind of knew at a very young age what you wanted to do, though. Because there's so many people who are like, no, yeah, I'm, gonna be, I'm a lawyer, or yeah, I'm a whatever. I'm in business, but I, uh, what I really want to do is write. What I really want to do is direct. But you knew at a young age, you knew. Well, I mean, I knew, I knew I wanted to tell stories. I knew that I had no aptitude for almost anything else. Um, and I think it sort of, it broke my, my immigrant father's heart when I'm like, I want to make movies. And he's like, what is this bullshit? <laughs> like, I don't understand. That. Yeah. The parent, the parents totally don't. Understand. My mother still doesn't understand what I do. Even when I used to edit commercials, <laughs> She didn't get that I didn't edit the show that the commercial came after. She thought I literally edited everything in the entire hour block of whatever she was watching. I, no, mommy, that wasn't okay. Yeah, this is not that my wasn't fault. Me. I didn't do any of this. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I remember my dad just saying, well, he watches enough movies. I mean, he, he clearly knows something about them, so maybe. I don't know. <laughs> um, and so, like, I went, I did this internship. Um, and, uh, and I spent the summer in LA, I spent three weeks working on Brooklyn bridge and then five weeks working on, um, Star Trek deep space nine, which was just like gearing up to be a mm-hmm. show at that point. And, uh, and then I was faced with the, like, you know, I could probably stay out here, you know, I mean, these Star Trek people seem to like me. I don't know if they'd offer me a job, but maybe there's a world in which, yeah, like this is just what I can do. And then, uh, and then I was like. Yeah, no, there's no not going to college. Like, I was in my my junior year. I got to go back and finish my senior year right. of school, um, which I did. And then, but I got... Your father really would have lost it then. Oh, yeah. No, there's no... There was, that wasn't even a discussion that I thought I could have, let alone win. Let alone, let alone survive. Totally. Like, you know, the, what, what happened to the, the older one? We, yeah, he's he's been he's been relegated to another family. <laughs> <laughs> um. But yeah, then I got an I got an internship in my senior year, um, like just after graduating at a magazine called Starlog, which was all about science fiction and TV and movies. And they had they had read about my uh, my Star Trek experience and asked me to write an article about it. Then they offered me a job, and uh, and Starlog, that was like oh, Starlog right. sounds familiar. Starlog sounds really familiar. Um, Starlog was the uh, one of the first like science fiction magazines that was on stands. I mean, it was like famous monsters. Mm. Um, but this sort of, this sort of spilled out of the convention scene that, uh, that grew around the cancellation of Star Trek. Like there's a bunch of fans who clearly like reading about this stuff and there's no place for them to go. There's no internet yet. It's 19, you know, 75, but they clearly want to read about this stuff. So they just started publishing a magazine that was mostly about Star Trek. And then it kind of broadened its appeal and became like, oh, hey, Star Wars is out. This is cool. Mm-hmm. And they make it a Star Trek movie. That's not bad. And then Raised Lost Ark and then Tron and then Close Encounters. And like it just became this. This got a steady journal of the rise of both sci-fi and fantasy as a as a bankable movie genre, but also fandom itself mm-hmm. as a as a as a bankable business. And Starlog as a company would then go on to launch magazines like Fangoria, which yes, is probably, Fangoria, okay, yeah, Fango is is still their their biggest uh, impact moment. Like the, the the legacy lives on through Fangoria. Mm-hmm. Um. And, uh, and so, yeah, they offered me a job and I'm like, oh, all right, sure. This is like, I'm writing about stuff that I like and I'm getting to write and I'm an editor and this is cool. And I guess I'm a journalist now. All right, that's fine. And I was there for like three years. And then uh, a friend of mine said, hey, you know, EW is always looking for really smart people. And I said, I really like Entertainment Weekly. Maybe I'll go work there. And she's like, well, give me a resume. And I did. And I went on an interview and they offered me a job. And then I was there for 13 years. Oh, my <laughs> God. There. From uh, from 1996 to 2009. That's funny. I heard um, I heard something about you being one of the first journalists 
like from a mainstream outlet to cover San Diego Comic-Con. Was that Entertainment Weekly? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, like I'd, I'd always heard like the legends of San Diego because, <laughs> you know, Star Starlog had covered it every now and again. Um, you know, I'd hear people talk about it when I'd talk to like these, these old school, like, yeah, I'm, I remember when I was, you know, 12 years old and I went to this basement in a hotel in San Diego and there was a bunch of people in costumes. That sounds cool. Um, <laughs> but by the time I got to EW and like, I think it was, um, Spider-Man had just come out and I was able to tell my bosses like, well, okay, here, see, here's the thing. This movie just made like $400 million, which is a lot of money in 2002 or whatever. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, uh, it seems like there's an audience for this. Um, I think we should cover comics. You know, I've been a fan since I was a kid. I think there's there's a lot of really interesting stuff happening. Um, like, okay, what do we do first? I'm like, well, let me go to Comic-Con and kind of like see what it's all about. They said, sure, fine, whatever. We don't care. It's journalism. There's no internet to make making money hard. <laughs> <laughs> it's like we have the world by the strings. It's amazing. Go ahead, do what you want. And so I went to Comic Con, and and it was it was amazing because it was half the size it is now. Mm -hmm. I think you could kind of like walk the corridors and like not have to breathe everybody, and kind of like walk into panel rooms and like just find seats mm -hmm. and like oh hey this is neat. It didn't take ninety um, minutes to find a bathroom or get into one mm -hmm. once you got there. No, like there's <laughs> there's no like jockeying for reserved seating at these things. There's no there's no parties really. There was no sleeping um, outside for was, three days. <laughs> <laughs> no, there, there was no Hall H the first time that I went there. Um, there was just, I think the biggest ballroom they had, they just opened ballroom 20. And so mm. it's like, oh, look at this. We can hold like 4,000 people. This is madness. Um, but so, yeah, I came back and I wrote about it for the magazine. And then I said, hey, guys, listen, there's, oh, there's only one party to speak of. Sci-Fi throws a party every Saturday night. I'm pretty sure that if you wanted to partner with them, we could kind of own this convention if we wanted to. And they said, well, how much for the cost? I, go, I have no idea. This is not my business, but I can give you the number that people have talked to. And they started conversations and they're like, yeah, you know what? Let's throw a party. Sci-Fi will do all the logistics and EW will bring the guest list and it'll be a big deal. And, and it is now such a big deal that I can't get invited to the party that I helped start. But I'm not. I had no I'm idea that you started this. I really didn't. But I do know that it's very hard to get into. And I think I saw you at one point like, yeah, I'm not going all the way over there to not be able to get in. I had no idea you started that party. Oh, my God. Yeah. And, 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 and you know, it was super fun for the, you know, eight years that I got to go. And then a little less fun. But I'm like, there's all of my friends. Goodbye, friends. <laughs> I'll go hang out over here with the other writers who can't get invited to this party. <laughs> how did you how did you make that leap, that crossover from journalism to basically creative to 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 that ink pot that you won? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, when I first started going to Comic-Cons and, and it became a regular thing, like once I started going in like 2002 or 2003, I haven't stopped going. So the last, the most recent one was like my 19th in a row. Um, but, uh, but yeah, every time I would go, like I'd meet a bunch of editors and writers and, and, and publishers all from the comics world who, you know, once I started co covering them regularly, it was like, oh yeah, no, you can write. We've read all your reviews. You're a pretty personable person. Um, you ever think about writing comics? And I would always say, yes, yeah, since I was 12 and I bought my first issue of Secret Wars. But uh, but for the time being, I'm, I'm a journalist and I can't the, – the conflict of interest is too high. Uh, I got to say no. And then I said to myself, Mark, you're being an idiot. Um, you should just do the thing you've wanted to do since you were 12. Find somebody else to do these comic reviews and start writing things. Um, and that's kind of what I did. There you go. That's kind of what I did. Um, and so like hatched a couple of ideas with a, with a buddy that I had, uh, gone to elementary school and junior high and high school with, and we were both nerds and we both wanted to do comics. And so we had like a handful of ideas and I went to Comic-Con and just started pitching people. It's like, Hey, who wants to listen to some stuff? Who's, who's interested? And then slowly started to, to get a little traction and began to write some creator owned stuff. Um, then got invited, uh, to pitch Jim Lee and invited is a, Oh, generous term for what that, that is, was. I was going to say, wait, 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 you can't just gloss over that. That must have been a little nerve wracking. Well, it was nerve wracking because I, I became the worst freelancer in the world. 
in that I, uh, I got a hold of Jim Lee's email and then I would send him an email every week for like a year. And all of those emails were awful. They were like, hey, man, when are you going to come to your senses and give me a book? Hey, man. And like I just I became you were that guy. Awful, oh, awful my God. You were that guy. I was that guy. You were that guy that you just told everybody on Twitter to not be. Yeah, I totally was. And I was also <laughs> that guy that as an editor who fielded calls for freelancers. I hated and it, it slowly became clear to me that I was that guy. And so then I sent one last email to Jim and I said, listen, man, I realize that I am now, I have become the very thing that I hate, which is a nudgy, insistent, pain in the ass, would-be freelancer. Um, this is the last email you'll get from me. I just, like, I have some ideas that I think you might dig. Um, if, you, if you're interested in them, let me buy you coffee next time you're in New York. And if not, no harm, no foul. Um, I apologize for being an ass for the last, you know, 52 weeks. And then he emailed me back and he said, I'll be in New York in two weeks. Um, let's meet for coffee. Aww. And uh, and so I like, sat down with him and, you know, we kind of just talked for like half an hour. And he says, well, what do you got? And I pitched him this book that would eventually be, become The Highwayman. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and he was like, OK, let's do that one. I like that one. And I was like, OK, well, what happens now? He said, I run the company. I said, let's do that one. We're going to do that one. <laughs> oh, oh, OK. Okay, cool. Cool, 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 cool. Yeah, no, that's that's all right. No, I get it. That's fine. Um, and that was my first DC work. And and Jim was like, all right, that's a pretty good book. You guys want to do this license book we have called Push based on this Chris Evans and Dakota Fanning movie that nobody's going to see? And I said, sure. That nobody's um, going to see. <laughs> <laughs> and and I think I think a history bore that out that nobody did see. I saw it. I, I mean, you know, some of us did. Some of us were forced to, and some of us chose to. But um, I was going to I might have been on a coast to coast flight, but I definitely saw it. <laughs> yeah, I might have been trapped in a metal tube with a bunch of strangers. And... <laughs> so then we got Push, and then off of Push, we got um, The Authority. They were relaunching The Authority, which was like their flagship book. Mm -hmm. And uh, we said, yeah, no, we'd love to do this. And we wrote six issues, and they got fired for reasons that are still mysterious to me. Um, <laughs> like, I don't know. And that's fine. It was Aww. 15 years ago. I've gotten over it, maybe. Um, I, and then you, I do remember you wrote for Static Shock for like 15 minutes. I did, yeah. Like, I then got a call years later um, after I think I had, like, Genius had come out, um, which I, you know, pitched in that same flurry of like, I got a bunch of ideas, who wants to listen? Um, what's it about? Oh, it's about a 17-year-old black girl from South Central who declares war against the LAPD. And everybody's like, yeah, no, we're not going to do that. But book. honestly, can I just tell you how amazing Genius is one of those books that there's not that many comic books I could say that just kind of stuck with me. And just like no matter where I have someone goes, what is one com indie comic that just got you? I will always bring up Genius. That book had me shook. And... If I, I so desperately want that to be adapted. Well, fingers crossed. Yeah, because... Anything is possible. Look, we just saw the <laughs> blackest Watchmen ever. I believe in things now. Listen, God is real. <laughs> <laughs> I believe in things. So Genius, which was brilliant. Yeah, like Genius, we pitched everywhere mm -hmm. and Top Cow picked it up. Um, and uh, and once it came out, like I get a call from another editor at DC who decided that, uh, oh, yeah, we remember that, A, you do black things and also you're black. And we only know like three black people. I was going to um, say, how <laughs> many of you are, were there at the time? Yeah, seriously. There's, there's, there was a handful. Um, and again, somebody was always got to stay in the bunker. Exactly. Um, and uh, they're like, do you want to do static? And I said, I would love to do static. Um, I was like, fucking Dwayne McDuffie? Absolutely. I, I love that dude. I can't. Yes, I will do static. So I started writing static and then um, they canceled static. <laughs> like before I turned in my first script, they're like, yeah, we're not doing any more static. But who called you? Was it, it was DC, DC or Milestone? It was DC. Like they, it was part of the new 52, the relaunch. Oh, they had had somebody already doing it and he they'd had a parting of the ways. And listen, we got this opening. Do you want to come and start static? You just gotta finish. Um, you just gotta finish this this storyline, then you can start your own story, and it'll be ongoing. I said I would love to, and then they canceled it before my first issue came out. So I wrote two issues of Static, um, the last of which I like quite a lot. I'm gonna go out on a limb and say it wasn't your work; it was something else. Yeah, I mean, it, it like it got canceled before I even turned in my first script. Yeah. it was one of those the marketplace had spoken, and people weren't buying. 
And so they, they realize, all right, we're going to cut our losses. We're going to do enough to put out two trade paperbacks, and then that's, that's going to be it. Okay. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was never like, I, I, I crapped the bed so bad. I still <laughs> <laughs> And all while I was doing this, I was still a journalist. I was still at EW at that time. Um, oh, you didn't stop. I didn't stop. Yeah, because, you know, uh, the you can't just it's, – it's hard to make a living at comic books unless you're writing like four or five comic books at the same time. Yeah. And I was not. And, you know, I, I got married and I had children. And comics, I love them to death, but they will never love you back. Not with a full wallet. <laughs> and so it was always, it was always, hey, here's my nine to five. And then once I'm done, I'll put the kids to bed and then I'll start writing the other things that I want to do. Um, and, uh, and, and like in the middle of that, I think I'd gotten a call from an agent who was like, hey, um, I got a hold of this genius book. And they're like, only like literally a single issue had been out. And he's like, I think I can sell this. And I said, I sure would like to see you try. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck, buddy. Uh, your mission, should you choose to accept it, you know, <laughs> convince a Hollywood that they really want <laughs> to spend money, millions of dollars, making a movie about a little black girl who kills a bunch of white cops. Um, and uh, I, I was right. <laughs> Nobody wanted to do that. But he was like, uh, was like, I like you. I like the book. Um, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, well, um, I, I fell in love with movies when I was six. But I've also been spending the last, you know, 10 years working in journalism. And the thing I love about journalism is the collaborative nature of it. Like I love being able to sit around a table with really smart people and solve a problem, you know, and, and in a weekly magazine, it's what's the story of this week? What's on the cover? How do we tell the story? How do we fill this magazine with enough goods to make it worth the four ninety five cover price? I said, so I don't feel like I'm the kind of writer who wants to sit by himself in his office you know, like hammering away to, at a screenplay for a movie that anybody may or may not see. It's like, I feel like I'm a TV guy. He said, okay, uh, you want to write TV? Sure. Um, here's what you do. You write me a, a pilot episode, an original pilot story of a TV show you'd like to see. Um, make it good. Um, be willing to come out to L.A. for meetings and meet a bunch of people to get your job. And then when you get that job, you have to move to L.A. in a weekend. And I said, okay. And I went home and I started writing that script. Wait, what was that conversation? What and... was that conversation like with your wife, though? Like, okay, so honey, if I get this job, we're leaving. <laughs> yeah, well, it was more like, hey, so this is another freelance thing. Like, it's if I get this job, it's going to be for like six months at a clip at best. And and I have no, there's no guarantee that they'll pick me up for season two. I have no idea when it did the, the gulf between season one and season mm -hmm. two. So. And it's also the longest shot of longest shots in the world. Like there's, there are maybe 2,500 jobs being a writer for television right. in the world. Right. And, you know, there are probably, you know, 200,000 people who think they can do the job, you know? So like the odds of me getting it are probably the same odds of me being a professional athlete, um, which are pretty long. So <laughs> let's not worry about like pulling kids out of school yet. Let's just, we'll start down this road. And if anything remarkable happens, we'll deal with it when it does. And, uh, and then something remarkable happened. Like I, I, I got this call. It's like, Hey, there's this TV show called alphas. Um, they're looking to, to bring on uh, a writer and they're looking for a diverse writer. Cause they also realize that they are a bunch of white dudes and like one lady. Um, would you like to uh, to meet with them? And so I said, yeah, absolutely. What's it? It's superheroes in a strip mall in Queens? Yeah, no, I got this. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, no. This, this, of all the things you could have brought me, this is the thing. Thank you. Um, so I get on a Skype call, and uh, the guy who's running the show um, was the same guy who was running Deep Space Nine when I was an intern. Ah. A guy named Ira, Ira Bear. And uh, so we, we have this conversation. Like, we're talking about the show. We're talking about superheroes, whatever. And like, halfway through, he's like, I know you, don't I? I was like, yeah, I, I was, uh, I was an interview. He's like, you're from the Bronx, right? Yeah, I'm from the Bronx because he never forgets you when you're from the Bronx because he's also from the Bronx. Mm. He's like, you're a Bronx kid. And uh, and so we finished the call, and then the agent calls me and is like, all right, it's Thursday. Um, they want you in the room on Monday. And so, uh, as promised, I had to move cross country in a weekend, um, which I did. Which but I then you, you know, got, called a buddy. But then you got to write for. David Strathairn and Malik Yoba and I did and Azita Denizada and it was it was lovely and wonderful and I was by myself in LA. I did like that show though. You know, the show had a lot of potential. And so I crashed on a buddy's couch for a couple of weeks before I like found an apartment that I could kind of sublet. 
um, for a couple of months. And I like put my car on a truck and shipped it across country and, and left my family back East because like I said, like there's no way of knowing if these four months are going to turn into a career, if this was just going Mm -hmm. to be four months and I don't want to be stuck in LA with no job and nothing to do and no way to make money. That would suck. Yeah. And also you don't take the kids out of school. You got responsibilities and stuff. Yeah. So like, I'm just going to, I'm going to go out here and I'll do this and then I'll come back when it's over and I'll like every two or three weeks, I'll fly home for a weekend and, but it'll suck, but this'll be the, this'll be the life. And it was great. I mean, I learned a bunch. I mean, after spending, you know, 15 years as a journalist looking over the wall at media that I loved getting to make it was illuminating and and mind expanding and wonderful. What was the biggest surprise for you being in that writer's room like for the first time? Um, The biggest surprise, and it is still to this day an ongoing battle, is focus. Like you spend so much of your life as a journalist multitasking, Mm -hmm. right? It's like I've got four stories that are in the works. I got to talk to four different writers and then the copy department has thoughts and photo and design and there's 98 balls in the air and you've got to kind of have an eye on all of them and, and be able to track like all of these targets at once. Being in a writer's room is sitting there and listening to a conversation and being present and focused and attentive to one thing for like six hours. Oh my God. And it's hard when it's something you have no experience doing, mm-hmm. you know? Because your brain has a tendency to be like, I wonder what's for lunch. What are we doing for lunch? Oh, hey, you know what? I'm going to buy those shoes. And then all of those times that you're just wandering, you're missing part of the conversation. And then you're lost. And then you can't contribute to the conversation. Wow. And so just training myself to to have to like, no, just be here and be present. And don't don't wander. Don't, don't navel gaze. Don't wool gather. Don't do any of these old-timey words for daydreaming. <laughs> um, <laughs> Just, just be here and listen. It, it was, it, it was instructive and and it hurt. <laughs> I don't want to think about this right now. So you probably go home and just pass out. Yeah, like it, it's it's exhausting, and that is that is the it's the one thing that you can't really explain to people. That like if you're in the writers' room, you know, and depending on the show, depends how long the hours are. But like, let's say you get there at nine thirty, and you're there until six o'clock, and you are thinking hard that entire like there's no turning your brain off and there's no we're just doing a road exercise there's no i've got the rhythm of this down it's 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 punishing if you if you're just not used to it and not like it's a it's like any other muscle if you're not working it out it gets lax and and flabby and those first couple of weeks of doing it you're like oh my why am i so exhausted oh that's right i've been thinking <laughs> i've been thinking so hard you guys well it it obviously <laughs> worked out for you because you have quite the, the, the repertoire now basically for all of these different shows you've been on. And then last year you were lucky enough to win for Castle Rock. What was that experience like? Yeah. It, uh, it, it was, it was crazy surreal because like it, it, it worked out uh, after it didn't work out for a while. Like Alphas was great. I got that job in like 2011, in like May of 2011. And we wrapped in November and like I went back home and like, hey, all right, great. We'll find that the numbers are pretty good. The network likes it. You know, hopefully they'll bring me back for season two. I don't know when it's going to happen, but fingers crossed. And I didn't get brought back for season two. Like they, there was a big like cleansing of the staff and most of the writers were like turnover between seasons and and then I'm like, well, I, I need a job now. What the hell am I going to do? Like, I thought I was right. going to be a TV writer. And then because it took so long for season two and then so long for them to decide to bring me back, what little momentum I had, what little heat I had had vanished. And I was like back at square one and, and nothing clicked for another like four or five years. Like it was, it was 2011 was Alphas and then 2017 was wow. Castle Rock. And so for those six years, like I went back to journalism, like I was, I was freelancing for a while, um, writing for, uh, sci-fi wire back blaster. when it was blaster, mm-hmm. um, blaster. I was, I was like any freelance gig I could get. I took, um, I got a job offer to come and do a contract work at the Hollywood reporter, um, which allowed me to move my family out West thinking that like, it'll be easier if I'm here, it'll be mm-hmm. easier if we're all here. Um, and, uh, and I worked for THR for a few years, and I worked for Playboy for a hot 18 months, running their entertainment vertical on the website. 
I then went to work for the LA Times, um, running their film department. And then, you know, a friend of mine who was already on the Castle Rock staff emailed me out of the blue and was like, hey, what's your latest sample? I think, you know, these guys are doing a show about Stephen King and they're lovely and wonderful, but they're not nerds. And, you know, we have this room that's... This, this needs a nerd. <laughs> this needs nerds. Like, we need a nerd and we need, like, a nerd of color because our protagonist is going to be Andre Holland. And, you know, we're just a bunch of white dudes who all, like, went to Harvard. And we, we, we don't know nothing about this life. So basically, we need you. Um, can you come and work for Castle Rock? And so I was like, yes, I can. And I met with the showrunners, and then I met with Bad Robot, which is a production company. And then they offered me a job. And then I quit journalism for the second mm-hmm. time. <laughs> and, uh, and then and that, that sort of led to that momentum. Like that was, all right, Castle Rock went really well. Then Treadstone mm-hmm. happened. And then off of Treadstone, I went to work for Carnival Row. And just being able to kind of brand myself as the guy who's pretty good at world building for giant IP um, seems like a pretty Which you are. I mean, did you uh, come up with things that we ended up seeing on the screen? Um, well, Carnival was an interesting um, experience because I came on for the mm-hmm. second season of that show. Um, and, the, and the first season was like in the can and they were doing post and they were um, sort of finishing up what that first season was. Um, but it was the first time that I'd come into a room where there had been a previously existing work. Like a lot of that work was done of like, okay, here's, here's this, this fabric of this world where like we have these mythological creatures and we're going to play in class and race and, and, and sex and gender and all of it. Um, and so a lot of the sort of big think, had been a thing that Travis Beecham created the show has been just mulling in his head for like 15 mm-hmm. years. Um, I think Castle Rock was different because Castle Rock, we, you know, we showed up and it's like, all right, well, we have this kind of loose story um, that we had pitched and, and, you know, we sold to Hulu and James on board. Stephen King really liked. Um, what's the, what are the boundaries of this world? How does it work? You know, how do, how do, how do the bad things happen in this world? You know, and I came from a world of, of journalism, especially of genre journalism, is just watching a bunch of it and ingesting as much of it as you can and figuring out the commonalities of these things. And like, no, horror, it lets you do a lot of things, but it needs yeah. rules. It needs consistency. It needs, it needs like, here's how this works. Here's what it can do and what it can't do, which is the thing that like straight up drama doesn't require because – all right, Sophie's choice. What happens? Well, she's just a human lady who's got like a crappy situation and she's got to make a choice and she's got to choose this kid or that kid. It's not, all right, so this is Freddy Krueger. How does he come into people's heads? What can mm-hmm. he do when he's in there? How does that affect him in the real world? You know, can people travel in and out of the world at will? Like if they can, like how do they do that? What's the key? How do you, how do you cross over? And if you can't, how do you know that Freddie like it's all of these things that you have to somehow – start to, to grapple with so an audience can understand it. So an audience understands the playing field that you're playing in. Um, and, and that is like, there are lots of people who do that incredibly well. The trick of TV writing is realizing that people show up for the world, but they stay for the characters. Mm. They stay for here's who's in the world. You know, I'm going to form, you know, what is generally um, kind of an intimate relationship with these people because I'm inviting them into my house. I'm going to, in some fashion or another, like have to want to keep visiting mm-hmm. with these characters. So what makes them tick? What makes them interesting? What what are the hurdles that are both universal and specific to those characters that that make them different? Like, hey, there's 58 doctors on TV. What makes Doug Ross different from mm-hmm. that other doctor? You know, and it's not just Clooney. It's like the character's different. Why? How? You know, what did this guy do in his past that that haunts him? What does he want that he can't get? You know, what's the challenges that face him? And that's the real work of TV. The real work of TV is like building these characters that can go for years and years and years that have enough problems and deficits that you can answer over the course of season after season after season. Do you find yourself not able to watch regular TV without using all of those parts of your brain because you've got the journalist part that wants to pick it apart and get to the get to the points you can write about it and then you also have the writer in you that is looking for maybe inspiration is it hard for you to just sit and enjoy a movie now 
Um, it's, it's not that it's hard because I'm still, I still come to everything wanting it to be good, mm. right? I still, every time the lights go down or every time some production logo starts, it's like, ah, well, what's this thing going to be? Even Cats? Did you come to, did you go to Cats thinking it was going to be good? <laughs> uh, I, I haven't seen Cats yet, um, but I'm dying to <laughs> because I get the feeling that like, Get, we're on the ground zero of what will be like the showgirls of tomorrow and like no i was there man i saw in this theater i paid good money for that i don't want to do that and i really like, want to be all histories i want to be home with alcohol when i watch that one. <laughs> <laughs> the thing the thing that going to the movies or watching a tv show does for me now is it either inspires me or it educates me Right. It's like, oh, my God, did you see episode six of Watchmen? That's the best episode of TV I've seen in years. How did they do that? Or, hey, man, did you see that episode of that show? That's kind of hot garbage. How did they do that? You know, what 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 wasn't firing the way it was supposed to fire? What what misconnections didn't get joined up that would have made this a satisfying experience? You know, like, hey, so I kind of I kind of like the Mandalorian and kind of hated Rise of Skywalker. How do two things kind of in the same world made by lots of the same people operate on two different ways? You know, what, what, what is working and what isn't? And it becomes, it becomes instructive for me. And I, and I think that, that other people who feel those ways sometimes don't have the, the language to describe why they feel that way. Um, and I think that that's, that's the sort of thing that when I, when I sit down with Kevin and we start talking about movies that we've seen or TV that we've liked and, and Kevin Smith, God love him, is the most optimistic, enthusiastic person I've ever met. I forgot to mention, how did you meet Kevin? I meant to ask you that. Uh, I met Kevin when I, uh, I was at Entertainment Weekly mm. and I got assigned to write this dumb little sidebar article about superhero costumes. And I was supposed to get like an expert to weigh in. And they were like, well, um, we could probably go to one of like the, the Project Runway people, but maybe try Kevin Smith. And so I emailed his manager and I like, got him on the phone and talked to him for like 10 minutes. And he was like, all right, great. That was fun. Thanks a lot. <laughs> and, uh, and then like a year later, year and a half later, I think Zach and Miri make a porno was coming uh... out or, or, or something was coming mm-hmm. out. And I wanted to do, I'm like, well, let's, I want to do a filmography. And, uh, and so I emailed that same um, PR person and they gave me his email address and he said, hey, listen, I would like to – it's like I'm a writer. I'm not a talker. This is how long ago this was. Um, <laughs> uh, can we do this? Can we do this over instant message? I'd much rather do that. And I said, fine. Bet. That saves me from having to transcribe a three-hour conversation with you. Um, let's do that. And then after that interview, he would just every now and again kind of like just pop up on my IM. Sometimes to just be like, hey, uh, do I use like a colon or a semicolon? You're like a professional word person. How does, how does this work? <laughs> um, and then sometimes he'd be like, hey, man, did you like see that movie? That was crazy, right? It's like, yeah, that was nuts. Like he would just want to nerd out with another nerd. And then he's like, hey, do you play poker? And I said, uh, yeah, not well. <laughs> Excuse me. And I said, great. I have a poker game in New Jersey. Uh, you should come and play. And I said, okay. And so I went and I lost money because that's what you do to real people. Um, you don't take their money. Um, and then I was in L.A. because um, when I was living on the East Coast, I would always go to, to L.A. for three or four days right before San Diego Comic-Con. And uh, he was like, hey, um, I got my new movie done. Do you want us to come see it? And I said, sure, I'd like to. And, uh, and so I went to his house and I watched a movie and I just hung out with him for a while. And then when I went out to work for Alphas, he was like, I got this podcast to do with my wife. Uh, you want to come and be a guest on it? And I said, yeah, man, sure. I can show up before work. And so I like, podcasted with him and his wife for like an hour. It's like, hey, man, that was fun. I said, cool. See you later. <laughs> and then like I, uh, I was out for the Hollywood Reporter and uh, he was like, hey, do you like Batman? And I said, who doesn't like Batman? So I do this podcast called Fat Man on Batman. Um, maybe come over with like your 10 favorite Batman comics. And I said, sure, I can do that. He said, oh, even better. There's this new DC animated movie. It's the Dark Knight Returns. They're at it. They're they're adapting it for animation. Um, let's uh, let's watch it and then we'll do like a commentary track for it. And I said, sure, man, okay. So we did that. It's like, oh man, that was fun. Let's do all the Batman movies. Oh and my I god. Said, okay. 
<laughs> so, we, so we did like all the Tim Burton's. We went all the way through like Batman and Robin. So basically it wasn't, this is the opposite of what you were doing with Jim Lee. Like this is basically you, this, it's, you just like, showed up and he would say, Hey, we should try this. And you go, all right. Yeah. The entire, the entirety of it is like, Hey man, um, that was fun. Do you want to be like the permanent co-host of this podcast? Sure. Kev. Hey man, uh, you want to put up some cameras in here? Maybe it's found on YouTube. Sure. Kev. Hey, man, that was cool. Uh, you want to try and take this on the road? Sure, Kev. Hey, man, I got a friend who's opening up a bar. I'm going to do this like a permanent installation in an L.A. bar? Sure, Kev. It is basically just him, him going like, hey, man, and me going, sure, Kev. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you want, buddy. So, so <laughs> like, that Hey, man, should we go kill hobos tonight? And I'm <laughs> sorry, exactly. Like, I feel like there's a whole bunch of stories in between some of those, um, some of those recordings that we're missing. But when when he's off <laughs> doing his, I mean, obviously there's more to the relationship than that because he he leaves you to the store when he goes off to do <laughs> other things. Um, in fact, I have loved some of your <laughs> black man beyond. <laughs> black man beyond. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because it's Kevin is the busiest person I know. Like, mm-hmm. you know, even even on like a slow year, he's like, yeah, I'm doing like I don't know, 200, you know, speaking engagements over the course of a year, and sometimes I'm making a movie, sometimes I'm shooting a TV show, whatever it is, and sometimes he's gone for a month, sometimes it's like four months, and I, and I always sort of felt like, well, there's an audience that shows up to this podcast. Um, and I, and I hate the idea of leaving the feed just empty. So like, if it's cool with you, like, I think I'll just try and do something by myself. And, and, uh, at first it was, you know, there's like me reviewing stuff or me doing Q and A's on Instagram video and Mm -hmm. drop it into the feed. But then it became like, yeah, let's, it was, I think it was black Panther month and, uh, and, and JC Reifenberg. You mean black Panther year, until Black Panther, yeah. until Into the Spider Verse, February, <laughs> right until <laughs> February, right. But then Into the Spider Verse, totally. I keep having to tell everybody Into the Spider Verse was the same year because nobody ever believes me. <laughs> I know, I know. I remember getting to the end of that year, going, "Can you believe? Like, I'm about to put a a Marvel superhero movie on the top ten, if not the number one of the top ten, and I had to choose between two really good ones. I know, <laughs> like." Who'd have thunk that that would have been the, like, look at all this bounty. I can't believe it. <laughs> but you know what? When you, I've, I've really loved a lot of the guests that you've had on. I, um, I was cracking up when Jacqueline Coley was there from, uh, for Rotten Tomatoes <laughs> and Malcolm Barrett, because it's really funny because you were just talking about what inspires you, but the whole Watchmen thing, like Watchmen is the, Watchmen is so black. Watchmen is so black. <laughs> that whole thing. I could listen to just that section for hours, but that was absolutely hilarious. And uh Yeah. In the painful in, even. In the <laughs> in the few minutes like, Malcolm, stop it. it. No, but Malcolm right. Late but effective. It's coming in hot. Watchmen's so black that Liam Neeson's still looking for it. <laughs> it <was> just... <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, that was like, we gotta stop playing this game because we are not gonna top that. Thanks, Malcolm. Right. And Jack was like, I got a real job. Malcolm's like, whatever. (laughs) Come on, man. I got to work in this business. I really do actually want to talk to you about Watchmen because it just dawned on me that you're one of the few black people that I've had a chance to talk about this show with that has read the comics and gets it. Because I usually have to talk to, I'm not against talking to about this with anybody, but like halfway through the conversation, I have to explain that, no, Tulsa happened. That's not the only Tulsa that happened. Okay, let me explain lynching. (laughs) And then then we're like off on a whole other tangent. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, Watchmen, you know, I I saw, I I remember talking to Damon because Damon Damon has become sort of a friend of mine. In a, in a loose roundabout kind of way. And you got a chance to talk to him for a while about that amazing podcast episode you had. Yeah. You know, and, and, and I remember talking to him when he was first debating whether he should do Watchmen at all. Wow. And he was on the fence. And, uh, and, and I was like, well, you know, listen, somebody's going to do Watchmen. Um, Warner Brothers is never going to let this just sit on the shelf. And, and I feel like, you know, do I think anybody should do it? I'm not sure. But I think if anybody's going to do it, it should probably be you because you know where all the minds are. You know the book inside and out, like, and you and you feel it very deeply. And then to watch, you know, the first episode and to see, like, Tulsa 21, like, oh, oh, my, like, yeah, oh, okay. Like, it's, it's the blackest show I've ever seen. And, and the thing that I was so struck by, especially by the time you get to episode six and, and seven, 
mm. is that it's it's a show that that brings an audience automatically, right? Like there's a, there's a comic book audience that is going to watch a show called Watchmen. Mm-hmm. Because they've loved the book, and it's it's a legendary text, and it's it's hallowed ground, and they were going to show up, and that audience is predominantly white, and and they were going to be confronted with a show that is fundamentally about black pain, and black pain in a very knowing way, um, in the same way that like a bunch of you know a huge white audience was going to see Black Panther. Because they had to, because they had to know what was going to happen after Black Panther. Mm-hmm. They would not have gone on their own to see like random black superhero movie, right. but they had to see Black Panther. And so they were given this message about black excellence and black love and black glory and all that stuff that they would never have voluntarily gone to seek out. And so the idea that there's this Trojan horse content that can, can reveal elements of the black experience um, is magical to me. And to be able to have these conversations of like, no, no. This is this is part of what it means to be an African-American. It's part of what it means to have this legacy that is both glorious and horrendous and to be all of these things at once and to and to find the ways to get up every morning and do your job, even if your job is punching people in the face because they might be racists, which, again, lovely. (laughs) You're so funny. Lovely. Well, I think also not just. Tulsa and, and Bass Reeves and seeing that on screen for the first time. But this is the first time I have physically, I've seen a, a literal representation of intergenerational transmission and pain. Yeah. And I have used those terms before and people did not know what I was talking about. And I'm like, this, this is what I'm talking about. How you can have generation after generation of that pain is not, going anywhere it's festering and it's leading to the next generation even before Angela took those pills she was still have this she couldn't put her name to it or or, or her finger on it but that pain was real yeah yeah no and and the thing that I realized I remember talking to other like black writers about it because we were all um the, the entire community was was taken by it was stunned and shook and like you know I remember one person saying like man I wish I wish there like there, there could have been a black showrunner who could have done this. And I was like, dude, there isn't one. And I was like, the amount of resources and the money and the care and the feeding and convincing a network to let him do this. And like, I don't think there's another showrunner who's working who could have gotten Watchmen made. You, you're not saying they another black showrunner wouldn't have the aptitude. You're saying they just physically wouldn't have the money and nothing would get greenlit. Yeah. Because black people. <laughs> because black people. Because, you know, like if you come to that show, if I come to that show in the Warner Brothers and like, well, why do you want to do this? Here's a story I want to tell. It's okay. Um, does it have to be this? Does it have to be that? Does it have to be so much this? Does it only have to be about this? Um, and I think that that Damon comes to it with a previous relationship with HBO, with the leftovers, to the massive pop culture phenomenon that was lost. Like he has the juice, the kind of juice that really, frankly, no other black showrunner has, with the possible exception of Shonda, who doesn't seem to want to do this kind of thing. Like I don't know if they can do it. I don't think genre is her thing. I don't, I'm, I'm not sure one way or another, but like she would have been the only other person bar none who could have convinced them to spend that money on that show in that way. Um, and so the, the, then I the, suggest you give Damon Lindell off a copy of genius and let's get this done. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and then the, the best part of it is that Damon knew what he didn't know. And knew that, mm. like, all right, listen, I, I discovered these things and I read a Ta-Nehisi Coates book and I've, I've done some of this work, but i got to surround myself with people for whom this is their lives and who can, can inform me of the things that I don't know and keep me and us from making mistakes that are far too easy to make. And he didn't have to do that. <laughs> a lot of showrunners don't do that. But the fact that he knew the only way this is going to be valid and real is if I incorporate the points of view of people who are not me and who do not come from where I come. And Hollywood is littered with people who come from the exact same place and look the exact same way. Um, so, right. yeah. I mean, it's and, it, and that fundamentally is as the crux of the issue. Like if you had, like I said, with Genius, it's an amazing, amazing 
storyline. But if all of the people you're pitching to, the only black women they know take care of their children or their houses, they're not going to understand how to make that movie. No, um, no. You know, and, and, and a lot of the people we spoke to years and years ago about it wanted to keep changing it because they didn't understand it. They were like, well, what if, what if it's like post-apocalyptic or what if it's instead of the, the LAPD, what if it's like a private security force? What if it's, it's like, guys, it is what it is. Like, if you don't want to make it, I get it. But it, it, it has no value if you take away the things that everybody responds to about it. You know, yeah. it has to be what it is. And you have to be willing to sort of sack up and decide it's going to be a little uncomfortable. Um, and we're going to hope the audience can understand why it is what it is. So last two questions. Okay. One, what are you excited about? Like what that's coming up now, whether or not you're working on it or not. I am I am fairly obsessed with this show on Netflix, this animated series called The Dragon Prince. Yes. Um, <laughs> which, you know, a, a, a fellow writer like turned me on to and I'm like, oh, no, whatever. And she said, well, no, it's by the guys who did Avatar The Last Airbender. And I perked up and then I said, that is maybe my favorite animated show of all time after the Looney Tunes. And so, all right, I'll check it out. And. It is, I mean, it's gorgeous. It's so wonderfully animated, but it's, it's, it's varied and diverse and funny and sweet. And like the king of this land is a black dude with dreadlocks. Who's got like a biracial kid. Yes. Who's the prince of the land. And like the badass general who like kicks as much ass as she wants is a woman who's deaf. And she has these conversations with like her gods mm-hmm. that you don't translate because it's not for us to know, but like it's, it's all of these things kind of all at once while still being this rip roaring kind of adventure yarn. And I'm like, yeah, like this is kind of not that everything needs to be this, but everything could be this if you wanted it to be. It's fantasy. Yeah. Like there's no rules in fantasy other than the rules you make up for yourself. And like, why does it have to be? And then you look at a show like the Witcher and you're like, okay, I mean, sure. This, this, everybody's like crazy white. <laughs> And like, you know, the, the brown people are like kind of valets or servants or whatever. But, you know, like, how white is your hero? He's so white, his hair is white. Right. Okay, <laughs> sure. He's so white, so, he so gets like, even whiter when he's angry. He gets whiter when he's angry. <laughs> and so like looking at those two shows back to back, I'm like, well, one of these I'm going to watch all of. The other one of these I'm trying to push my way through the second episode of mm. and not because of one and not because of the other. But there's a thing going on there that I'm not um, I'm just less disposed to giving precious time to mm-hmm. um, um, I'm trying to think what else I've, I've come around hard on the Mandalorian. Oh, you didn't like it at first. I was not a fan of the first like two or three episodes. Too slow. Um, it was it was nothing like first I'm like how much did they spend on this these episodes are 32 minutes long and what's happening like he walks into a place and beat the dude up and like gets a job and goes and does the job and like that's it like what's there's like no character work being done here and like I can't see his face like (laughs) and then I realized that like oh no okay it's 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 Star Wars is and has always been for children and you know, there there are like momentary blips in the matrix of that, and you get a movie like Rogue One, which is like this kind of mature look at war and the futility of conflict and sacrifice and all that. But like otherwise, it's you know we got robots stepping in bantha poodoo, and we got like pod races, and we got like you know it's 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 a kid's fable and kind of always has been. Yeah. And so looking at The Mandalorian as a show for like ten year olds on Disney Plus, that, on Disney Plus. Just like Star Wars is a movie for 10-year-olds that just happens to have a couple of burning corpses to make it like a PG rating. But once I did that, I'm like, oh, I get it now. Like, you know, kids can follow very mature emotional stories, but they cannot really follow like crazy complex plot twists. So like it's super simple. Like he's got a mission. He does the mission. What's the mission? This thing. And there's like a baby Yoda to kind of anchor the mission. Like, okay, cool. I get it. Some of these are better than others, but I understand it now. And as I came to the end of it, I'm like, oh, okay, no, they did a thing. And they had a plan the whole time. And, like, this was always going to be this. And, uh, and for, for what it is, it's, uh, it's probably the better version of what it is. Awesome. Now, my final question to you is if you had to talk to Mark, who was the intern back in the set of DS9, 
what would you say to him? What advice would you give to him? Um, I would, I would tell him to, uh, keep the faith, you know, like it is, it is an improbable thing you're trying to do. Um, and the odds on you actually getting to do it are long, but you have to trust in the fact that you have a gift, even if you can't quite access it all the time. Um, and it will be the temptations to wander off the path are uh, great, um, but stay on the course and keep the faith and, and, and continue to remember that the people you meet along the way will evolve and change uh, just like you do. You know, my, my dad would always tell me that, you know, the people who are answering the phones one day will be the ones hiring the people to answer the phones the next day. So, like, never think that you are better than anybody else based on what they do for a living or what they're doing at that moment. And the longer you have a career in anything, the more you realize that everybody is changing and moving and evolving and growing. And that as long as you've treated everybody along that path with some semblance of dignity and kindness, then they will be there for you on the other end as well. That is wonderful. Thank you so much. I can't wait to. Uh, My I can't wait to hang out with you again. Hopefully, when I come to LA, maybe I can be part of the Blurred Crew too. It's in my name. Um, <laughs> what? what? <laughs> but I will. I will definitely want to stop by and see the show live because that looks like so much fun. Um, uh, it is the most fun I have in a given week. And thank you so much for taking a time out of your very busy schedule, writing all the things, even the things that you can't talk about, <laughs> to hang out with me. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Love Mark. Now you know how at every geek outlet there's like one black guy? It's it, it's like Highlander. There can be only one. Well, Mark is that guy. In fact, of the blurred Highlanders, Mark is our elder, and at the time of the quickening, if he is not the one, he will be remembered. <laughs> We were, we will lay down our swords for Mark. So that's it for me, folks. If you've hung out this long, please consider subscribing, leave a comment and let me know on social how you like this podcast. And I will see you on the internet. <laughs>